We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. You have your Bibles, and if you don't, let me invite you to use one of our new Pew Bibles on page 31. Page 31. As we turn to Genesis chapter 37. So here's where we're going to go this morning. We're in Genesis as we move through the story of the Bible. And we're going to move real quickly this morning. Because we're going to cover about 13, 14 different chapters. So we're going to move from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50 really quickly. Now we're starting the last portion of the book of Genesis. And it focuses specifically on the life of one man named Joseph. This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And in the book of Genesis, what we've seen are the stories of the patriarchs. Now, maybe you've heard that word. Uh, you can't escape it. Everything, everywhere I turn, the evils of Western society are the result of the patriarchy. But in the Bible, biblical patriarchs have a totally different kind of meaning. The patriarchs really are the line of men that God used to establish the nation of Israel and his covenant people. Now, each of the patriarchs highlights a different aspect of what it means to follow God. We've looked at some of the patriarchs over the last couple of weeks. Last week, we saw Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham shows us, as an example, what it means to live by faith. God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm not going to tell you where that land is, but you're going to have to trust me and walk by faith each step of the way. His son Isaac is a picture of a heart that is surrendered to God's will. He was obedient to his parents, Abraham and Sarah, and he trusts their guidance on selecting a wife. When God tells him to remain in the land, even though there are all kinds of challenges, there was a famine, the enemies were attacking, but God said stay, Isaac stayed. When he discovered that he had been deceived by his son Jacob, he accepted the deception and that God was working through that and submitted himself to God's will, even though it went against the cultural traditions of the day. He recognized that God was at work and he submitted to it. Isaac shows us that God's ways are not our ways and that God does not think the way that you and I think. The prophet Isaiah says that in chapter 55, verse 8. Jacob, the deceiver, the trickster, his life is kind of marked by this wrestling match with God. And in this encounter, he wrestles with God and God touches the socket of his hip. And finally, for the first time in Jacob's life, he stops wrestling and he starts clinging to the promises of God. Now, Jacob was a trickster. and He was always in every situation trying to outthink everyone in every circumstance so that he could come out on top. In his life, through a comical yet very heartbreaking story, he winds up married to two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And if you know the story, he goes to work for his uncle, and his, un- his uncle is, is every much a trickster as Jacob is, and he kind of pulls a fast one on him, and he marries off his older daughter, Leah, whom Jacob does not love. Jacob loved Rachel. But he's married to Leah, and then he stays on, and he works for his uncle seven more years, and he finally gets to marry the woman he loves. But because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and because Leah was kind of set on the side, God blessed her and allowed her to be fruitful and conceive and bear sons for Jacob. In total, Jacob has 13 sons. He has seven by Leah, the wife that he does not love. Then each of the wives provided him with their servants, and they provided two sons apiece. And then lastly... 
Towards the end of his life, Rachel bears two sons to Jacob. If you can imagine, it was a dysfunctional family arrangement. Imagine, you know, some people talk about the Bible condones and endorses all kinds of things. The Bible is not always prescriptive in saying you should do this and live this way, but it is descriptive. And it talks about the truths of broken families. And it shows us the consequences of favoritism towards a wife or towards a child. And in this particular circumstance, it was a dysfunctional family because Jacob loved one wife and he just kind of tolerated and put up with the other one. And yet the wife that he doesn't love is the one that provides him with seven sons. And his servants provided by each of his wife provide him with four more sons. And those sons really are just kind of afterthoughts in the story of Joseph's life. So it's this dysfunctional family arrangement that we see in our passage this morning. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word. Beginning in verse 1 in Genesis chapter 37. Now Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Now Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose, stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and, I t- and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, the theme of Joseph's life is really kind of captured in this theological idea we call the providence of God. And it ultimately means that God is in control of every single thing. And it means he's in control of the biggest details and the smallest and seemingly insignificant occurrences in your life. He's sovereign over your life, my life, but he's also sovereign over the whole universe. The Westminster Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 3, in talking about God's eternal decree, says this. That God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely... And unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but is rather established. So the Westminster Confessions, the divines, they gather together and they say, okay, what do we say about the providence of God? They said this, that from eternity past, God did by the wisdom and the holy counsel of his own free will. So no one's twisting his arm. He's not obligated to anyone. But because he chooses freely of his wise and holy counsel to ordain whatsoever comes to pass. But then they provide these um, these uh, 
kind of add-on phrases. In case someone comes up and says, well, then that makes God the author of sin. They say, oh, no. It's done in such a way that God is neither the author of sin nor is violence to your will and to my will done. So that when we choose something, we choose it because we chose to. Now, some people talk about will are having free will. And in the sense that when you choose something, you choose it freely. But our wills are in bondage, in bondage to sin. And so we can only choose what our wills or the nature of who and what we are. So we freely choose things, but we can only choose those things that are in line with the nature of who and what we are. So that's why we constantly choose to disobey and to sin against God. And then it goes on to say, that neither liberty nor contingency of second causes is taken away, but rather established. And so what we see in the book of Genesis and what we hear in the Westminster Confession of Faith is this, that God, providence, says that God is the one who created everything and everyone. And providence is the doctrine that he's still involved with everyone and everything. He rules over creation. He rules over history. Yes, people sin. You and I and everyone around the world sins and makes poor choices. But God works through providence in spite of this, sometimes using these sinful decisions. He ultimately works out everything, no matter how bad it looks to you and me in the moment. He ultimately is working out everything for the glory of his name and for the good of his purposes. How is he able to do that? Well, he's a sovereign God. He's bigger than creation. He's bigger than the people in your lives. He's bigger than even you. So even your own sin cannot stop the hand and the arm of God from accomplishing his will. Sometimes we give ourselves way too much credit and we think, oh, I've really screwed this up. But here's the thing. God can bend anything and everything for his purposes. God can do what he pleases. That's what providence means, that God is in charge that he's ruling and reigning and that he's ultimately going to work everything out according to his good pleasure. That should be of great comfort to you this morning, to me this morning. No matter where you are, no matter how dark the valley might be or how bright the sun might be shining on you, the idea of providence, that God is sovereignly in control, working all things according to his good pleasure to accomplish his will, should give us confidence that we can trust God. You don't have to see. You don't even have to understand what God is doing, but you can still trust that he's doing good things in your life. God's never surprised by the events of our lives. Now, you might be, I might be, but God never sees in a specific circumstance and goes, fascinating. I did not see that coming. I never expected that to happen. Because God ordained from eternity past whatsoever comes to pass. I'll give you an example. If you'd asked us 11 years ago, we're living in Birmingham, Alabama. Where is God going to take you for your next kind of chapter of ministry? And you said, I'm going to give you a piece of paper. I want you to write 100 places that you think God might lead you. Utah does not show up anywhere on that list. I would have said there were a number of places around the world that we would have gone before. And yet here we are in Utah. Now, God was not surprised by that. God was actually working in individual circumstances to prepare and to get us ready for this place. So God is not surprised by the circumstances, the events in your life. Why? Because God is in control. 
Now, in the life of Joseph, we see this as God tips his hand by declaring from the very beginning of Genesis 37 how this story is going to play out. Joseph has two dreams, and they're basically the same message, and God doubles the dream. He gives him one, mess, one dream that he shares with his brothers, and he gives him a second dream that he shares with his brothers and his father. And this way, God is emphasizing that he is committed. This is the course of action that I'm going to take. This is the way I'm going to work in this family. We know this because if you skip ahead to chapter 41, when Joseph is taken to Pharaoh, Pharaoh has two dreams as well. And this is what Joseph says about the doubling of dreams in verse 32, chapter 41. He says, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. It's a similar way in which you're playing pool with a friend and you run the table and you only have one ball left, a black eight ball. The way the game is played, at least the way I was taught to play it, is that you have to call your shot. You have to say, eight ball, corner pocket. So that way, when you make the shot, your opponent knows that it was because of skill and not because you got lucky and it bounced off a railing. It just happened to go into a pocket. So God is calling his shot here in Genesis chapter 37. Now, Joseph's life doesn't look like what you and I would imagine it. Joseph's dreams spell out that one day he's going to be a place of significance and a position of authority, but not just as a position of authority, but authority over his family and that they're going to bow down and worship him. But something happens and Joseph's story goes sideways and his life feels like the lyrics to Dr. John's famous song. I was in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but I must have used the wrong line. Because things begin happening to Joseph that look nothing like the dreams that God allows him to have. After narrowly escaping death, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's falsely accused of rape. And then he finds himself in an Egyptian prison for two years at least. But then the story doesn't end there. God remembers Joseph. And God was with Joseph during these times. And he is lifted to a place of prominence. and He becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt and quite possibly all of the world. Now, when we first meet Joseph, he, he, pardon my language, he's just kind of a jackass, it seems like. If you look at Genesis chapter 37, he's 17 years old. He's pasturing the flock with his brothers. And it says that he brings a bad report to them, to his father. If you understand the dynamics of what's going on, you can see this happening. The favored son comes to tattle on his brothers. And he knows that whatever he said, dad's going to believe and his brothers are going to get in trouble. In verse three, we read that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of other sons. And it says it was because he was given to him in his old age. Or you could think of it like this. He was the baby of the family. And sometimes family dynamics are that the baby of the family gets treated entirely different, especially than the firstborn and maybe the middle child if there's three. So he's the baby of the family, but he's also the son of Rachel, the wife he truly loved. So everyone knows that Joseph's the son that Jacob loves, but to make matters work worse, Jacob decides that he's going to give Joseph a special coat. And the significance of this is not just that he has a special coat, but clothing was a way to communicate status or importance. And so he gives to them what the Bible says, a coat of many colors. And so not only do they know, but every time they look at their brother, because he puts this coat on, even if it's hot outside, he's going to put the coat on and he's going to rub it in their faces. That's at least what we get from Genesis chapter 37, because what we're told is that his brothers hated him. 
So then Joseph has these dreams. And rather than keeping them to himself, he comes and just kind of says, hey, you'll never guess what happened last night. Taking a, taking a nap, going to, going to sleep, and I had this dream. And my sheaf stands up, and your sheaves all bow down. What do you think that means, brothers? You guys are smart. How would you interpret that? And we see, they ask him, we're going to serve you? You're going to rule over us? Because that's not the way this works. But God is electing Joseph for a special role. He has a second dream, and this time he tells it to his father. And it's interesting, his father rebukes him, it says. So it was offensive to his father. But notice it says in verse 11, his brothers were jealous, they hated him, but his father kept this saying in mind. Because Jacob has seen the way that God works in his own past, He's heard the stories of his grandfather, Abraham, and he just puts it in the back of his mind and he thinks there might be something to this. So Joseph's brothers hate him because he's been elected for this special role, but it's not going to play out the way that Joseph imagines it will. God shows up, he elects Joseph to be this great leader, and like many people do, his brothers hate him for the fact that God worked outside of what they thought he should do. That he chose Joseph and not Reuben, the oldest. That he chose Joseph and not Judah or Simeon or one of the other sons of Jacob. That God would bless this guy or this woman more than this guy or that woman. So the brothers despise the fact that Joseph's been chosen. But the story goes on. And if you read on, they're tending sheep and Joseph says, Okay, I want you to go check on your brother, so I'm going to send you to them. He goes after him. He finds him near Dothan. He's looking for his brothers. And when they see him off in the distance, they plot him. Now, how do you think they knew it was Joseph? How do you think they knew it was Joseph off in the distance? It was his coat of many colors. It was the one thing that he treasured maybe more than anything else was the one thing that tipped his hand and allowed his brothers to get the jump on him. And so they have this idea. Notice that they, they can't even call him by his name. They just simply call him, here comes that dreamer. They don't even call him by his name anymore. The, the toxicity of the family dynamic is so bad that he doesn't even have a name anymore. He's just the dreamer. And there's this poison that has seeped into the family because of the favoritism of a father. But this wasn't the first time. Jacob's parents did the exact same thing. Their parents had favorites. And so we see sin patterns repeated in the lives of families. And so they say, here's that dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's just be done with him. But Reuben doesn't have the stomach for it. So in verse 21, he says, When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and they throw him into a cistern, into the well. So Reuben doesn't have the stomach. He says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just get rid of him and throw him in the well. Let's not be responsible uh, for his death, but let's just get rid of him. So they go through this plan, they trip him of his robe, they throw him into this cistern, and they're sitting down, about to eat a meal, and they look up and they see distant relatives, the Ishmaelites coming. And they have this wonderful idea. Judah has this wonderful idea. Judah says, if we just kill him, we just throw him in a well, let him die, we don't get anything out of that. But if we sell him to the Ishmaelites, we at least can make some money. So Judah comes up with this idea to sell their brother Joseph into slavery to the distant side of the family that no one talks to anymore. So they do. They sell Joseph off into slavery, but they still have the issue of dad. So what do they do? They take this coat, they dip it in goat's blood, and then they go back to their dad and they say this. 
hey, we found this. We want you to examine whether or not it's the coat that belongs to your son. Like there's any doubt. Like anybody else in the world had a coat like that one. But we just, Dad, we found this. We're not really sure. Maybe it's the one that belongs to Joseph. And Jacob tore his clothes. He goes in the morning and basically just says, I'll never be comforted. Life will never be the way that it was before. He recognizes the robe and he says, Some ferocious animal has devoured and Joseph has been torn to pieces. Now the twisted part of this whole thing is he puts on sackcloth, he mourns for his son, and all of his sons and daughters, they come to comfort him. Think about how twisted that is. They know exactly what they've done. They see the heartache that their dad is in, but they cannot reveal what they've done to Joseph. So while Jacob's in mourning, the Midianites sell Joseph to Potiphar, who's one of Pharaoh's powerful Officials, he's the leader of the captain of the guard. And if you flip over to Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, we read this interesting verse, which seems to be out of place because everything looks like is that God has abandoned Joseph. And that the dreams that God allowed Joseph to have are not coming to fruition. But this is what we read in verse 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. We don't read that about Joseph at any other point. When he was getting a special code, when he was loved by his father more than any of his brothers, I don't think we read the Lord was with Joseph, but it's when he sold into slavery, delivered into uh, Potiphar's house in Egypt, that we see the Lord was with Joseph. I think something happened in the life of Joseph. I think there's some humility that's taking place. There's some maturity that he has to experience. And now his spiritual life is addressed, and the Lord was with Joseph. It doesn't feel like it. But Joseph is living a sort of a variation of Dr. John's lyrics. It looks like Joseph is in the wrong place at the right time. He's one step away from the most powerful man in all of Egypt and the world. And God is setting the stage for the rest of the story of Genesis and setting the table for the book of Exodus. Now things continue with more unexpected twists and turns. He blesses him in Potiphar's household. It's kind of like everything he touches is like the mice touch. It turns to gold. He says, oh, I want you to invest over there. Boom. Big return. Oh, I want you to sell that. Big loss. I mean, just everything he does is the right thing at the right time until Potiphar's wife notices him. She tries to seduce him. And when he rejects her sexual advances, she accuses him of rape. And he's thrown into jail. Now, in prison... The last place we would imagine Joseph to wind up, he meets two people, the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the chief baker. And he sees that they are dejected and he asks them why. This is in chapter 40. He sees that there's something troubling and bothering him and he asks them why. Now, this is one of the reasons why I think there's a, there's a, a, pro, a growth process that happened in Joseph's life. He sees that they're heartbroken and their faces are down, but he never recognized that in the faces of his brother. So something happened. Joseph's gone through these experiences. Maybe it's softened his demeanor. But he says, why are your faces so sad? The cupbearer tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph interprets it. He says, in three days, the Pharaoh will lift your head up. He will restore you to your old position. He's like, things are going to get really good for you. And the cupbearer says, when that happens... You're coming along with me. I'm not going to forget you. When I get to Pharaoh, I'm going to be like, this dude told me my dream, and you need to bring him up here. Well, we know that exactly the way Joseph interprets it, it happens. Three days later, the cupbearer is brought back into Pharaoh's court, but he forgets Joseph for two years. 
Also, at the same time, there's the baker. And Joseph interprets the baker's dream in a very different way. He says, in three days, Pharaoh's going to lift your head up, but you're not going to like where it's going to go. It's going to go on the top of a pole, and you're going to be killed. And the baker's kind of like, uh, I want my money back. And, uh, I mean, that's not the kind of dream interpretation that you want to get. But Joseph just speaks the truth as plainly as he can to this man. You're not going to like what I have to say, but because I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. Sometimes you and I have to speak difficult things to people we love. Tell people that we know who are living apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You continue down this path, and you're going to experience destruction. You're going to leave all kinds of heartache and hurt people in your wake, but eternally you're going to experience destruction. But Joseph tells him the truth, and exactly as he says, it happens. Three days later, Pharaoh calls for him, and the guy's put to death. A couple years go by, Pharaoh has a dream no one can interpret it, and the cupbearer remembers this guy, oh, Joseph, in prison, interpreted my dream. So they call for Joseph. Joseph is brought to Pharaoh. He's told the dreams, and he interprets them this way. He said, there's going to be seven years of abundance and richness. We're going to be living high on the hog, but there are going to be seven years of famine that follow. So we need to take the seven years of abundance and get ready. Because if we take the resources that God gives to us then, we'll be able to use and make them last. Pharaoh's impressed. He's wowed by Joseph's wisdom and ability to interpret dreams. So he says to him, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. He makes him the second in command in the whole land of Egypt. He puts a ring on his feet, a robe on Joseph, and he has him driven around the chariot with runners who go before him and say, make way. Joseph's coming. Make way. The second in all of command is here. The same way that we have politicians that have security details that go in front of them so that people know important people are coming. And so that things are taken care of, so they can just walk right in and walk right out when they're ready to leave. So Joseph's story has shifted sideways and shifted again. Joseph has now been exalted. But Moses is telling us that God is still at work. That this is not the end for Joseph. That God is still up to something. A famine happens just like Joseph predicts. But it isn't just localized to Egypt. It affects the whole region and it affects Joseph's family all the way back home. Jacob hears... His father, that there's a place in Egypt where there's food, grain that they can buy, where there's a hope of his family surviving. So he sends his sons to go and get some. All but one son, Benjamin, the youngest. He sends all the other brothers, all 11 of them, to go to Egypt. But he keeps Benjamin at home because he couldn't bear to lose Benjamin. This is the one who, like Joseph, was born to Rachel, the son of his old age. And probably was the, the, the recipient of his favor when Joseph, he thought, died. So all the sons but Benjamin go to Egypt. They go up, not knowing who it is that they're going to beg for food, their brother Joseph. Twenty-something years since they sell him off into slavery, and they have no idea what God has done in his life. They just know they sold him into slavery, have no idea how God has been at work to raise him up in Egypt. Now their brother is the second most powerful man in the world. They don't know. And they come, and they do exactly what the dreams say. They bow their faces down before him. He remembers the dream. They may not remember, but I'm sure they do. Because there's this hint in the story that they remember the voice of their brother and how he's crying out to them not to kill him, not to put him into death, not to sell him into slavery. So I imagine they remember the dreams. They just don't recognize that that's Joseph in front of and that they were fulfilling the dream that they hated him for so many years ago. He's overcome. He starts to weep, but he doesn't tell them who he, do, who he is. He does a strange thing. He accuses them of being spies 
They say, no, no, we're from another land where we belong to the nomadic people. And he says, OK, then if you if that's the truth, then I want you to go home and I want you to get your brother that you talked about. I want you to get that brother that you said you left at home and I want you to bring him here as proof that you're telling me the truth. He says, if you do that, then I'll give you all the food that you need to live and I'll let you live and I'll put you to death. So his brothers go home, they tell Jacob what has happened, and you can imagine how he responds. No, there's no way I'm going to let you take Benjamin back to this, because then I'll lose the other son that I loved. But the family gets so bad that he he no longer has a choice. He relents. The brothers arrive in Egypt with their brother Benjamin, and Joseph arranges for a dinner. But it's not just any dinner, it's a very specific kind of dinner, because he's recreating something. They're seated at the table in accordance with their age. But one place has five times as much as anyone else's in Genesis chapter 43, verse 34. It's the place of Benjamin. And what Joseph is doing is to see if anything's changed in the life of his brother and the life of his family. Once again, a younger son is being treated with favoritism. And so he watches what happens. He knows he's going to send them away with all the food and all the money that they need. He knows he's going to be generous to them. But he just wants to see, has anything changed in the lives of his brothers? So he sends them away with everything that he's giving to them. But then he has them brought back. He says there's a missing treasure. A silver cup had been taken. They said, we didn't take it. If any of us are found to be alive, keep us here. But this is what Joseph done. He secretly had this cup put in the pack of Benjamin. So they search and they search and they don't find it. They don't find it. And they finally get to Benjamin and they open up his pack and the missing treasure is discovered. And he says, you can go home to your father. You can have good lives. I'll still give you everything you need. But this one is staying here with me. He will be thrown in prison. So here they are, 11 brothers in the exact same situation that they had been in a couple of decades ago, having to go home and tell their father, we lost the son, the son that we know you love more than any of us. And this beautiful, wonderful thing happens. Judah, the one who came up with the idea to sell their brother, not just kill him and get rid of him, but to sell him and to make some money off of it. The one who came up with the plot to sell Joseph into slavery. The one who came up with the scheme to put the animal blood all over the coat that Jacob had given them. The one that who continually probably went to the presence of his father and continued with this plan throughout the years steps forward. And what we're seeing is that there has been some transformation that's taken place. If you'll flip over to chapter 44, verse 18, this is one of the most significant speeches in all the book of Genesis. Then Judah went up to him and said, O Lord, please let your servants speak a word in my Lord's ear. And not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said, Yes, we have a father, an old man, a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. His father loves him. And then you said, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said, The boy cannot leave, for if he should leave, his father would die. But you said, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So we went back to your servant. We told him, And he said, go again, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go if our younger brother doesn't go with us. 
And then your servant, my father, said, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs in, in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our, bro- our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father. If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now this is where we see the idea of a substitute again in the book of Genesis. Now therefore, let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? For I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah comes to him and says, Hey, look, if he has to stay, then let me take his place. Let my brother return to my father. I'm willing to stay here and take his place. We saw the idea of a substitute in the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, that God provided the ram as the atoning sacrifice. And here we have a brother who says, Look, I'll take the punishment if you'll set them free. Fast forward to the gospel. Jesus, the only begotten Son, the Son who's lived in perfect relational harmony and delight and mutual submission and obedience to the Heavenly Father, He comes to earth and He's rejected so that you and I could be embraced as beloved sons and daughters. It's the exact same thing we see in the life of Judah. Judah says, look, I'll be cut off from my father if it means Benjamin gets to go back home. Jesus comes and says, I'm willing to be cut off from the Father if it means my people get to go back home to their Father. The Gospel is in the book of Genesis from the very beginning to the very end. Judah's life is transformed. I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus is a descendant from the line of Judah. It's because what God had done in the life of this man and his willingness to be a substitute so that his brother might go free. Judas thinking like Jesus. He steps forward and he says, look, if this one's going to be thrown in prison, I'll take his place. And Moses slows down this story because he wants us to see the heart of Judah, that transformation has really taken place. He says, if he's going to be beaten, let me be beaten. If he's going to be executed, let me be executed. And Jesus does the same thing for you and me. So what does it mean, providence of God? It means that God's always working to accomplish his purposes. And that you and I can have confidence that our sin, the sins of others, just the reality of living in a broken, fallen world will not stop God from accomplishing His purposes. And what are those purposes? Through the life of Joseph, you see what that purpose was. You flip over to Genesis chapter 50. After Jacob dies, they bury him. And his brothers recognize that. And they come to him and they say to him, Hey, look, uh, now that dad's gone, what are you going to do to us? Because they're afraid. They're terrified that he's going to take out his vengeance on them now that dad's died. In verse 19, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In the NIV, it translates so that many people might be saved. See, God is able to work in all the difficult and challenging circumstances of your life when things go sideways and you feel like you're in the right place but the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time like Joseph in order to accomplish His purposes. So if you're here, it's because God sovereignly and providentially brought you to Park City. Now, yeah, maybe you made some choices and you applied for some jobs and those were approved and you got a transfer and you wound up here. But you're here because God is accomplishing his purposes in your life to bring glory to the name of Jesus and that many people might be saved. We don't know who those people are, but we should be praying. God, use me. I'm here. I'm available. Take, with me, take me and do with me what you will. Let's pray.